Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L-O-U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm Dietrich Farr. Hey there, folks, this is Donald Plum of the American Songster, slapping the death with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. From 1840 to 1890, minstrel shows were the most popular form of entertainment in America. And it derives from two characters that were birthed within four years of each other. One, Jim Crow, created by Thomas Dartmouth Daddy Rice in 1830, and the other, the Zip Coon, first performed by George Dixon in 1834. One was based on a character by a white actor slash dancer who blackened his face with burnt cork and danced the jig while singing the lyrics to the song Jump Jim Crow, and the other made mockery of free blacks who were portrayed as arrogant, ostentatious figures who dressed in high style and spoke in a series of malaprops and puns that undermines their attempts to appear dignified. Both of these characters would soon merge to make the coon, which has become a stain on the image of African Americans. However, at the same time, it was a catalyst for the successful careers of many African Americans at the turn of the century. Today, I speak with Dom Flemings, the American songster, about the history of blackface and minstrelsy in regard to early black music and entertainment and its effect today. First of all, welcome again, Dom, to Jack Dapper Blues. Well, Jack Dapper, thank you again for having me, man. It's always a pleasure. Yes, it, it really is. As you always say, there's a lot to unpack. I would like to read this excerpt Though before we get into it, uh, it was written in the Indianapolis Freeman, a black newspaper by uh, a writer called Tom the Tatler, okay, in 1901. I want you to dive into this excerpt first because this kind of says it all. Again, 1901, he, he penned this for the Indianapolis Freeman black newspaper. And the quote goes as this, the colored man writes the coon song. The colored singers sing the coon song. The colored race is compelled to stand for the belittling and ignominy of the coon song. But the money from the coon song flows with ceaselessness activity into the white man's pocket. Can we unpack that first? Well, I mean... One thing I would I would mention is just uh, look at the reflection of all the different eras of of entertainment in in the United States, and you'll see different versions of this very argument and story coming up. And I think in the 1890s it was no different. But one thing we have to think about though is that uh, when you're in an era before recorded music being available, everything had to be seen in the live performance. And the live performances became so bombastic over a period of time that uh, it had to break itself down and turn into something new, which is what happened in the recorded music era. So I think that uh, in the context of the time, I mean, uh, yeah, you have um, uh, very wealthy white proprietors that are 
paying for the productions that people like Burt Williams and George Walker are doing. But then at the same time, you have these these same performers turning around and, and creating a, a benevolent society called the Frogs, in which they tried to elevate the Negro and the arts, and they created the template and the uh, foundation for what would become the Harlem Renaissance. So it's a very nuanced conversation going on. I guess, of course, in the context of the blues, the blues is a folk music, and the blues incorporated itself into the Black vaudeville world in the early 1900s, and it ultimately superseded vaudeville. And um, it really put the last nail in the coffin for blackface minstrelsy in a certain regard. It really makes the blues even more phenomenal of a, of a musical genre than, you know, than fans of the blues even know. Right. As I like to preach, the blues was the actual first freed expression for a freed group of black folk. And I guess what you just said heightens that to the next level. Now, you said a whole lot. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, but before we go into the latter part of that, you mentioned something early on we can go into first, actually, uh, Williams and Walker, because it is said that Williams and Walker uh, was a direct product of African-American migration from the rural South to the Northeast, right? And they kind of created, or not necessarily created, but they, through their art, polarized this new Negro scene. How important were they, and how did they actually infiltrate Broadway? All right, well, now this is an even more interesting story. Now, so uh, since this is an African-American program, I should mention that George Walker was from the South, but Burt Williams was from Nassau, and he came over and lived in San Francisco, and the two of them started working together on the vaudeville circuit in the circus shows in San Francisco during the- So wait, Nassau in the West Indies? Yeah, so Burt Williams is a West Indian man that what ended up happening is that Williams and Walker saw some of the old minstrel shows at that time. You know, there was just the still same plantation slave archetype. And they just said, this is so out to, of date and we really need to modernize the um, the blackface minstrel character. So they, they created a, an act that was called the Two Rio Coons. And they were really dapper. They wore like tuxedos and the, you know, they had kind of the big guy, little guy comedy routine and they both sang. And um, George Walker then died unexpectedly at a young age. And then Burt Williams made recordings and became a, a big recording star up until about 1920 to the era of Mamie Smith uh, recording the crazy blues. So he's like in the kind of in the background this whole time. But for, for those two guys, they then saw these uh, Dahomean uh, Africans that were at the World Exposition Fair, and they thought to themselves, we should delineate our own characters based on these Africans we've met here. And they created a show called, uh, called Sons of Ham, and then another one called In Dahomey. And um, there was another one that they, Abyssinia was the other one, which is, and so it was, they, they covered themes of African uh, kingdoms in, in a musical comedy form, and it became huge on Broadway. And um, they created the Frogs after that because they had made enough money to make these big Broadway shows. And within the Frogs, they, were, he, they worked with James Rosamond Johnson, who uh, worked with a guy named Bob Cole, 
who was also in the Frogs. They made the first colored Broadway musical called A Trip to Coontown. And they worked with Williams and Walker. And then they worked with James Reese Europe, who um, was the famous band leader, ragtime uh, uh, um, banjo uh, orchestra leader from Harlem, who also was a World War One veteran. And uh, James Reese Europe had these two protégés, no- Noble Sissel and U.B. Blake. Right. So, UB, uh, so James Reese Europe died very unexpectedly uh, in, a, in, a, in a murder. And um, and UB Blake and Noble Sissel championed his cause to create a African American vernacular Broadway form, and they created the song Shuffle. Uh, they record. Re, they made the show Shuffle Along as a result of that. And so it's this really long timeline of Black vaudeville that links back into blackface minstrelsy, but it it, it evolves into this whole other. African-American art form. But again, it's in the context of theater, and that's something to really keep in mind with everything said and done. People were thinking of this as a style and something that they did to create a character. Uh, and and as while it may not make sense to us in modern day um, context, this is just what people did. And so it's a very interesting, complex, very strange history too. It is. And what I find interesting is what you just shared with us almost reflects this statement that I, I'm about to read to you that I, that I came across. It says that after the Civil War, the function of the blackface characters were meant to be authentic, an authentic representation of African-Americans instead of the carnival, carnivalesque uh, 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 mask that it started out to be. So I, I think this is a good time to backtrack and kind of give the origin and how these things kind of came together, right? Because we we have a couple of things going on. We have um, the beginning of Blackface, which was Thomas Daddy Rice, right? That's right. Jim Crow, and then a a couple of years later, we have the Zip Coon, and somewhere these things merged and, and made a lane for Black music and entertainment. Can you unpack that for us? Oh, sure. Well, this is the sort of odd part about it, because it turns into this interesting story of American popular culture as seen through the theater. So in England, they have a style of performance art called Music Hall, which is like... um, Basically, you have an actor who creates a character, like there's a guy named George Laybourne, and he has a song called Champagne Charlie Is My Name, which people that are fans of Blind Blake would know that he recorded that song. But Champagne Charlie was his character, so it was George Laybourne as Champagne Charlie, and then he sang all these songs as Champagne Charlie, and that's part of the music hall art form. And so breaking away from that European antecedent, in America, we developed our own type of folksy uh, American crass, uh, you know, uh, musical theater form. And blackface minstrels, he was a part of it. And of course, in New York City, uh, between, you know, the, the years after the Civil War, leading into the early 1900s, First World War, even Second World War, the uh, population of immigrants of every different ethnicity is like, is overwhelming. So it, musical theater took on all of these ethnic groups and and sort of did their own sort of, crass stereotyped musical form because at the time you know music had to be composed and so 
with the, when you get into blackface minstrels, you're thinking of uh, early American composers composing the vernacular sounds of what they think African American music is, and mm. so it creates a dichotomy of is this something that they're really doing, or is this something that the writer said that they're doing? So blackface minstrels is. Uh, reverberations of this idea again and again, because and, and how it fits into African American music is, of course, you have early African American music, banjo and fiddle, and and you have these early types of instruments being brought over and then mixing together in the rural Southern vernacular music. Then it goes up and it becomes a popular music form. So then it translates over. So like a guy like Daddy Rice, he's an Irish American guy that um, is a dancer. And in St. Louis, the story goes, he saw an old stable hand that had this little uh, kind of limp that he did. And then he, Daddy Rice, he figured out a dance that mimicked what this guy was doing. And the thing went over so well in the theater that night, in the context of his theatrical play he was doing, he he got 30 encores and people loved the character, the dance, and the song Jump Jim Crow. So he was selling three things at one time. And there was a whole set of archetype black-faced characters that were in place. By the time we get to the end of the Civil War, it's such a well-known form of entertainment it's like, think of like, uh, to get really silly, think of a show like The Simpsons, you know, there's right. there's a, a, a mother, a father, a daughter, a son, and a baby, and they just do wacky things. So at this, by the time you get to the end of the Civil War, the archetypes are set in place, so when African Americans want to get into entertainment, they just have to learn how to be Jim Crow or Zip Coon, or they know how to play this character, or Tambo, or Mr. Bones, and they learn those theatrical forms, and then over time you find... Uh, slowly and steadily, they evolve and they, they make their own African-American version of it. Even with the minstrels, the Virginia minstrels usually meant a white group. Georgia, right. Georgia minstrels usually meant a black group. That's And so when you think of like the Fish Jubilee singers, the first time they're out performing, people are like, wow, this is the sort of the weirdest minstrelsy we've ever seen. Because they had been so used to African-American minstrelsy that to see these people dressed in suits and doing very lovely classical spirituals was something that was a novelty because it was just so different. And so it led to a, a snowballing of people saying, we want to see the real thing. What's the real thing? What's the real African-American music? And it reverberates in that way, which is why African-Americans by the 1890s, after Reconstruction and all the different stuff that went on uh, up since the Civil War to the 1900s, the music reflects that. So then you have urban blacks that are up to date, ragtime people, because ragtime is the musical accompaniment to coon songs. So right. ragtime is basically they take out all the words and ragtime becomes its own musical phenomenon. And that's a part of this bigger story. And um, of course, when it comes to the blues, um, we get to the vernacular versions of the blackface minstrel shows that are part of the deep South because people in the North don't want to go into the South and tour. And that was true back then too. Right. You had deep Southern uh, traveling minstrel circus shows like WC Handy. He was a pit band orchestra for Mahara's Minstrels, which was a blackface minstrel show, but it was like a kind of a classier circus like P.T. Barnum or, um, I mean, there's even like the uh, something like the Universal Circus, which is a black circus. It, right. It was, imagine those things being combined in a single place because in segregated times, that's all you had to go with. And 
from those circuses, you have people like Ma Rainey come out and you have people like uh, uh, Lonnie Johnson is a part of that world, Big Joe Williams. And those people were all part of the Southern vaudeville, which also is part of the medicine show world as well. But that's a little bit of the unpacking. Sorry, it's a no, no, no. Part of history. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. You know, I, I like how you were able to condense all of that in, in, into into such a, a precise statement because there's a, quite a few things I would like to tackle out of what you said. Like for one, according to John W. Finson, the music that first presented itself as a model for realistic menstrual songs came from uh, black religious songs or black spiritual, so to speak. So it was just kind of ironic that you you, you said that because I wanted to ask you about that. But I, I want to unpack something else here. Because I'd recent, I recently started a series on Charlotte Fortin Grimke, who, as you know, was the very first person to document black spirituals. And one of the things that I found that was, I don't know if it was odd, but it, it shouldn't be odd, but I think it's, it's something that's rarely discussed. And, and that's the, the, the difference between the educated African-American and, and the, the non-educated. Because when she went to, to St. Helena Island, she found it very difficult to connect with and make a bond with the people of Sea Island who are just newly free. Now, I, I, I say that because of something you just said, and I want to talk about that. The connection between educated Blacks and rural, non-educated Blacks in, in this menstrual and Blackface world. What was that dynamic? Well, there's a... Let me think. There's a couple of things. One of the things, I'll, I'll give an example. A few years ago, I, I wrote an article for the Oxford American about Gus Cannon. Mm. And it was, um, it was discussing a song called Can You Blame the Colored Man? And the song is a parody of the uh, meeting uh, of Theodore Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington in the White House in 1900. And so this was a big event. But to just kind of sidestep away from that, I learned a lot about Booker T. Washington himself. And one of the things I found that was interesting is when it came to the Black Manifesto, and we all know this, there's a Black Manifesto that is put out there and we try to teach people parts of that manifesto so that we can understand the, the bigger history. And I'm so glad that there are so many schools of thought now coming out as uh, we have more access to technology. But basically... Uh, you had a uh, you had a period of time where you had people born into slavery and you had people that were born into freedom and they had two different perspectives of how they wanted the world to evolve and move forward and um, you find that reverberating a lot as well because of um, you know you have a guy like Booker T Washington who was more of a guy who said get a trade and really build up where you're standing while a guy like W E B Du Bois wanted to have more of an intellectual conversation about the rights of, of e equality on, right. on, on a civil rights level. And of course, there was a certain point where Booker T. Washington's manifesto didn't, didn't resonate with as many people as it did earlier on when they were coming straight from slavery saying, great, we got some land, we're going to grow it, we're going to make a city, compared to folks that were saying, well, we're in the city and we'd like to be treated as uh, on the same level. I mean, that's, two conversations that it'd be very hard to come to a single conclusion. 
Right. And I think that that happens too when it comes to the the music as well. Uh, you know, you were either really deeply within the church music or you were deep in the secular music. And I think that those have always gone back and forth. And especially with the minstrel show, if the you know, you, if you look at uh, Frederick Douglass's thoughts on the minstrel show, he's he's really appalled by it, and he thinks it's a horrible thing. Right. Um, as well as black spirituals, he weren't he wasn't a fan of those as well. And, and, and in a way, I can understand why in the way that how it's being manufactured and produced out to people, I could see him having a philosophical problem with that, you know, mm. uh, just and it's and again, it, this is this comes from the perspective of people who are born in slavery and people not born in slavery. And and of course, you get to the 1890s, then it's like two generations out of slavery and when the railroads are in place, people can really get very urbanized very fast. In um, And there's a lot of connection between the old world and the new world happening. And I think that's why the blues had to evolve out of that. Being able to travel and, and, and see and experience different things. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting book uh, called The Original Blues from um, Abbott and Seroff. And they've done a great trilogy on stuff. And you mentioned the Indianapolis Freeman. Right. But in the third book, they talk about how there was a musician named String Beans, and he was a blues singer who improvised his blues. And it was so real, apparently, that it was um, it just knocked everybody out every time. Mm. But because it was improvised and it was not composed music like everybody else in Black Vaudeville was doing at the time, they were all composers, publishers, performers. And it was a, a very elaborate system. And uh, String Beans ended up dying very young, unfortunately, as well. And he never made recordings, but he set this precedent for improvised blues. And one of his famous lines is, um, if anybody asks you who composed this song, just tell him his sweet Papa String Beans. He's been here and gone, which is a, a blues line that resonates again and again uh, as, as a, a particular piece of blues vocabulary. And apparently the realness, instead of having to play a character, the realness of the blues, uh, it, it put the final nail in blackface minstrelsy. And uh, the book kind of ends out where they say, well, we've got nothing left because they basically the recording companies came in and recorded all this improvised blues, took all the money, and uh, there was nothing left for black vaudeville, you know? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And and this is where we see, if I'm not mistaken, the the names uh, of of the artists, the names of songs, and the context of songs becoming more travel based, right? Like Route 69, or this and the third, or, or I'm on a or some type of river, or whatever the case may be. That's right. Well, that's part of the transportation system. I found that out with jug band music. Mm. If you follow, you know, Memphis. Uh, is connected to uh, Baton Rouge and uh, mm -hmm. New Orleans and uh, Mobile, Alabama and uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi. And, and from there, you can go to Memphis, Louisville, St. Louis, Chicago, all on a single riverboat. And that's what people did for a long time. Then the trains came in and then you had all these other towns. That's when if you if you look at uh, Highway 61, you can check out the old uh, uh, yellow dog, you know, from uh, WC Handy. Look up the old railroad lines for that. You'll find Aberdeen there, uh, Pledge, Senatobia, all stops along the same train line. And it's almost like a map of the blues in a way. 
Right, because when you said Aberdeen, I thought of uh, Booker White, uh, I thought yeah. of uh, Mississippi John Hurt, and all the greats that that made these songs. Right. That's so, right. right. So now, with, with this being said, we we we've we've touched quite a few things. I, I want to delve into this gentleman real quick, and then we can get back to blackface and minstrelsy. But uh, during the time that this was still uh, prevalent or, as you say, popular entertainment and, and employment for black people, because I, I just want to, before I get into this, I have to stop for the audience to make it very clear. I, I hope you understood what Brother Dom just said. This, this was an elaborate system, though the imagery may have ultimately uh, been disrespectful or received in, in a negative uh, a way. These were trained musicians. They were coming together and they were really, you know, writing and writing out songs note for note. So this was not any ABC one, two, three situation. It was very intricate. So it, it's kind of an oxymoron saying that out loud, but it is. But there is a, a gentleman that I come across Andy Rizoff, I believe his name is, who mm -hmm. chose not to take that route and still had some sort of, uh, well, not some sort of, he had a lot of success. Uh, are you familiar with him? Could you unpack the people like him in that time who chose not to go blackface or not to go ragtime and coon songs? Well, you know, what's funny about him, see, now... With with that fellow Andy Razoff, he he was from Madagascar. See, and that's the thing that's fun a fun interesting thing mm. to know about him. And but see he see again there was always a a backlash to the more offensive imagery. Like one of the interesting stories I found was that there was a really offensive song, one called "Every Nation Has a Flag But the Coon," and that's rough, right? That's very rough. <laughs> and so. Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey got together and they incorporated the Pan-American, uh, Pan-African flag because of this song. Mm. And so like there's there's like a there is definite response to all of the offensive imagery that is that is happening all along the way. And of course, in the, by the time the Harlem Renaissance really begins to evolve, they are evolving. They are evolving past the old minstrel imagery. But, you know, like when you think of Langston Hughes, he has banjos and countrysides and stuff like that in his imagery, but it all really elevates past the, the you know, the cabin in the sky, if we want to talk about the movie. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and they just kind of, they evolve into this beautiful, glorious jazz. And that's kind of what, that's kind of where the upper echelon went. But we have to remember there's a Southern vernacular music form that evolved uh, out of all these brass bands being around, um, you know, like when you hear a guy like Charlie Patton, you can tell Charlie Patton went to the old, the old tent shows and saw people like Ma Rainey or Bessie Smith early on, because these women had careers 10 years going by the time the record companies discovered them as new artists. And again, that's a, a thing. We see that in the modern era where you have musicians that have been around for years, but they finally cut that first major label record. And everybody's like, oh, my God, overnight success. But, <laughs> you know, but you're like, well, he'd been doing it 15 years on the on the street with all the all the folks that have been supporting him. And Mulroney and Bessie Smith and all of them, they came out of that that world, um, just like Mamie Smith is part of the Harlem cabaret world. Right. And so 
it, it became like for a while, the trend was let's get black women singers. And, and it was in a response because remember, like your quote said early on, talking about coon songs were sung by blacks. There was a, a movement of white singers, white women singers, uh, people like yeah. Sophie, Sophie Tucker, who was the last of the Red Hot Mamas on Broadway. She sang coon songs as a coon shouter was what they called them. Right. And they sang songs like Bully of the Town, which are, I mean, if anybody listens to these songs, they're dropping the N-bombs like, like there's no tomorrow in, these, in some of these coon songs. And it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll knock your socks off to hear a cylinder recording that's, that's speaking this language. But it was done by white women. Mm. And again, if we think of the women's liberation movement and stuff like that, it's also reflective of this particular type of song with ragtime. So Sophie Tucker was doing that. And and at first, the blues divas were known as coon shouters as well. But over time, they just turned it into blues diva and just made it a whole other style of music. And so then that evolved into its own thing. But it, the translation of this theater art form with, with a pit orchestras, changing them into jazz and improvised orchestras with people like Louis Armstrong and... Uh, Kid Ori, King Oliver, right. Jelly Roll Morton. Now, now we're getting a whole new world of what Black Vaudeville is and and what it became. You see, and and so the blues is still the vernacular music that was there beforehand, and it was there afterward. And and you know, a lot of the black string bands like the Mississippi Sheiks, they do. Uh, they got a song uh, called um, what is it called? The the Mysterious Coon. Right is one. It's a that's one from the first black musical a trip to coontown by bob cole one of the mm. frogs that's one of his songs and so they record that in their repertoire along with uh, fiddle breakdowns as well as sitting on top of the world and see as a as a group that understands that black vernacular music is multiple things they recorded a, a lot of different types of material and of course it it translates over into blues and jazz and and that gospel music as well. Right. So would, would you consider Pick Poor Robin Clean by uh, Gishi Wiley and uh, I can't think of the other sister's name, but that would be considered a coon song based on the, the commentary of, uh, of the lyrics. It would definitely be in that vein. It's See, that one's kind of a combination of both the formal song or and a vernacular version of it because that's yeah it, it has a combination of both of those forms because yeah and see and that's what happens too is like like any type of popular music once it goes out there it reverberates in the rural communities and so you find these very interesting evolutions of the the song forms coming through within um, the early recorded music especially when we get into the late 20s and the early 30s where you have a lot of rural performers uh, uh, that are performing their own original songs or sometimes pulling out these older uh, songs from the Black Vaudeville uh, era. Like um, Bo Carter has the one um, uh, Turnip Greens. Right. Uh, that's another one that's uh, connected to Cow Cow Davenport, who is a, a famous ragtime piano player, blues singer, as well as a vaudevillian. So they, it's, it has these very interesting reverberations that come through uh, all all across this particular genre but again it's a it's very very multifaceted it's it, it covers so much ground because this there's a northern version and a southern version and then they even reverberate each each maybe five ten years you know <laughs> yeah I, I do as i listen to you break this down i think of the rap 
version of hip hop because the rap version is the actual vernacular of of the people. And I think about the reality of the, how the, the lyrics evolved from one thing to another and the reality of, of the people's communities become prevalent in the songs and then in all genres of African-American music of, of current, the last 10 to 20 years, you, you see this uh, reflection. So when you, when you broke that down, that's kind of what was going through my head. Now, man, <laughs> You've unpacked quite a few things, which which is very good. I, I would like to discuss because, I mean, you are the American songster. Oh yeah. So yeah. So now we we know that early songsters there was not necessarily a format, right? That that these guys would do like twenty minute songs. You know, at what point, because a lot of those, some of those guys went on to be involved in, in, in this particular entertainment business, right? So at, at what point did it go from, you know, on a porch or, or at some sort of shindig, corn diddy or whatever, where they're just playing for people to either dance or to be amused or entertained to actually making a, a format out of these tunes to fit not the narrative of the blackface or whatever, but fit the narrative of the actual show, right? So yeah, yeah. well, it, it's an interesting thing with, especially when it comes to this particular era with like the Coon songs, for example. Like, for, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example, like a guy like Frank Stokes, who was out of Memphis. Right. There are several songs that he he does within his recorded repertoire that are coon songs in essence, like chicken that couldn't curl behind the moon, as well as I got mine. It's a good thing. Uh, we shall be free. These are songs that all reference back to the minstrel show, but in the form that Frank Stokes does them, he's taken all of the imagery that was buffoonery and he has transformed it into black ingenuity and excellency. So mm. like I got mine is really, again, it's another one that's dropping the N bombs. Like there's no, no, tomorrow but in frank stokes version he takes all the offensive words out and then the i got mine is him getting ahead in every situation so these songs how they were written it was based on the audience it fed into the stereotypes it with a certain audience but it fed into the good stereotypes for another set of the audience without changing a single word and and that was how a lot of that material was created it could be uh, kind of like uh, a lot, you know, the, uh, I don't know, like uh, if you think of like where they have a lot of jokes for the adults, but the kids don't get it. It's yeah. these, songs, these songs are written in that way where the black audience would think one thing and then the white audience would think of another way. And a guy like Frank Stokes really works it very well to really uh, play to a black audience, a very strong message of like, hey, you know, we've got obstacles, but we're going to get past them. Like, you know, guys like that, uh, Gus Cannon's another one that does that. Um, his song, My Money Never Runs Out. The two songs that he used, which is one called I Don't Care If I Never Wake Up, which is about a guy that smokes opium. Um, and he changes it into this song about being the best he can be. And uh, it, it's really interesting the way that that you have this transition happen. There's another article I, I, I saw from Bob Cole. In 1909, he actually um, put a call out through the community, I think through the Chicago Defender or the Indianapolis Freeman, one of those, 
And he said that, it, and he apologized for having tried to cash in so much on coon songs. Mm. And he was encouraging everyone to stop using the word because it's gotten so bad on the street that we really have to stop using that uh, word in our songs. And so that was, it was interesting to know that there was even, they did it. Then they, then after 10 years, they felt bad about it. And then they came back and said, you shouldn't do that. But the songs still reverberate within the community. You know, and that's the power of uh, of a strong song as well. It, it is. I, I would like, oh, you keep doing this and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> because in, in the Coon song, at the turn of the century, this was considered, or actually even before the turn of the century, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, we could say, 1880s to 1900, this was considered a great innovation by African-American musicians, coon songs. However, yeah. at the turn of the century, racism was intentionally used through coon songs because of fear of whites that African-Americans were migrating from rural into their areas, particularly yeah. the North. Could you unpack that? Because based on what you just said, it sounds like a group of these artists understood the impacts of, of these things. Absolutely. And that's what that that was what they were working with as well. And it's, it's see, and it gets really odd until it's, it's really seems very odd until you start to look at the individual lives of these performers, like a guy like, you know, Burt Williams worked with guys like Will Marion Cook, who was like a classical musician who uh, because he couldn't get uh, he couldn't get the positions he wanted within legitimate opera. He went to writing coon songs, mm. and, but but he was writing harmonically interesting, harmonically different compositions within the coon song uh, formula. And so. That was the, you find that that's a part of this story as well, and it, it's very very peculiar. Again, in, in a but this is a world before you had recorded music, and so all music had to be heard live, and that's something that makes it very different than anything we could even imagine today. You know, um, yes, and 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 so that's kind of where where, where all that stuff fits, you know. But um, but the blues is a very interesting thing. Like the I mentioned, the guy String Beans, he had a protege. Um, and uh, Butterbeans and Susie were his protégés. So they're kind of a holdover to this guy Springbeans from Black Vaudeville, but they're like a, a husband and wife uh, vaudeville comedy duo, kind of like, uh, I don't know, like George and Wheezy from the Jeffersons. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like an older version of that, but that was a big thing too, is uh, husband and wife Black Vaudeville teams and kind of like, a, yeah, somewhere between like kind of like the Jeffersons where they're always kind of bickering with each other in song or like, um, right, right. You know, that's a part of it too. Mom's Mabley comes from this world. Yes, she does. Um, Rudy Step Ray Moore, oh you know? man, Rudy Ray Moore was, was, <laughs> he was a brilliant businessman of nothing else. Now, I, I want to ask you this question because we, we've, we've kind of, encapsulated all of these things into this conversation so far. So I, I would like to know, based on all this information, what does this say about Black folk, Black musical expressions? And I mean, the blues specifically, but we can incorporate all African-American traditional musics. Well, I mean, I think the most powerful thing is that in spite of the obstacles, 
there there are so many amazing contributions that have been made by African-American people since the very beginning. And that's something to just, I think, even to just sit and meditate on that for just one moment is is very powerful in of itself. And especially if you're a big fan of the blues and understand uh, all of the history that that. Uh, that is encapsulated within this music, or you think of country music and old time music that have their roots in African-American culture and African-American roots and African roots, Caribbean roots, the whole thing, just to be able to sit and think on how powerful this music has been for not just the people in the United States, but all over the world. I mean, it's really something. Well, yeah. And, and I'll say, since you mentioned international success, blackface was an international success in the 1800s. Exactly. Uh, right. So please unpack this because it's believed by some music scholars that blackface gave actors and dancers the ability to make socially relevant statements against the system in a less intrusive way. What's your take on that? Absolutely. I mean, it's the same sort of reverberations we see within jazz history. You know, like when when Billie Holiday first sang Strange Fruit mm. or um, when uh, Nina Simone sang Mississippi Goddamn. These were songs that that changed the course of these women's careers because they they took it there and yeah. it changed the whole thing. But that it was also it again. Think of the people who wrote it. The, they didn't write the songs. They, these were progressives that were writing these songs for these women, too. So it was a combined effort in uh, composition, in terms of social statements and movements. So that's in the legitimate world of music. But when we think of folk music, that's where that's where people like Ellen Lomax and John Lomax and John Work III come into it. Because they're saying, see, these popular musicians, they're they're presenting this form of the story. But look, there's this other form of the story that we know exists. Here is our documentation to prove it. And that's that's why you have folk music and its documentation taking place around the same time, early 1930s, because they're seeing a change with technology coming in. Again, now this is where the 21st century relevance comes in. The technology is coming in. It's changing things and telling stories in a certain way. And now here are these other schools of thoughts that have to come up in defense to show that they exist because without the technology would just wipe us all out, or at least in theory, it would just wipe us out. But that's, that's part of where you have this, this, uh, given, given take this push and pull of what's, what's real folk music and what's popular, the popularization of folk music and the popular version of it, if you will, Mm. you know, and, and it, there's no right answer, I, you know, but it's, yeah, minstrelsy takes you there, though. <laughs> no, it, it it does. And bringing up folk music, I, I would like you to incorporate someone with, with who who's considered like the, the king or the godfather of folk music, Lead Belly, because he's had, he's sung a lot of coon songs. That's right. Within his, when, within his repertoire, again, we have to think of it as a broad repertoire and it being one type of song within this bigger repertoire. And Lead Belly, again, he's collecting songs just like any of us listening to songs. We don't have a single song we would necessarily go to if we knew all of these other songs. And Lead Belly uh, took in songs like that and presented them. Again, his story, his story has, it, it tiptoes along the line. 
because he he would spend time in Harlem, but they didn't like his accent because he spoke in a thick Southern accent. Um, at the same time, when uh, John Lomax came and told this incredible story of this musician, the New York Times, they they published it as you know murderer get murderer sings a couple of songs between homicides, and so they oh, wow the media the media had a lot of that backlog of racism still within because you know it's only 20 30 years before that was when jack johnson became the heavyweight champion so this is you know people are not not used to this sort of type of music but lead belly again he's singing not just coon songs but skip to my Lou, midnight special he's singing something a little bit of something for everybody mm. and and that's what always drew me into the songsters in general which is part of um what is what I find so intriguing is a lot of the early songsters from the the twenties and thirties they they have songs in their repertoire that lead into these earlier periods of music and it's just it's fascinating to be able to see what things stuck and what things just got passed by you know yes yeah, so because what I'm receiving and I have to say I'm in agreement this is such a complex. Man, this is such a complex world, for lack of a better term, that majority of people are, are really misinformed or, or 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 maybe not mis, misinformed, but but receiving the impact and complexity of this world totally different than what it actually really is. Absolutely. And that's part of the interesting thing uh, that I found overall is uh, especially when I started to realize that many of the early recording artists that I guess thinking of how we think of recording artists now, you think most people were playing material that's relevant to the exact moment that they recorded it. But to think that people recorded songs back then that could reference back to 30 to 50 years previous is something that I don't I, I don't think that most of us would ever have considered being a part of commercial popular music, um, at least in the way that we see it in the modern era. And so we're finding that. But at the same time, in the world of streaming, you're also finding that, too. People are just recording stuff and throwing it out there. They're making the 78s of their time where maybe one obscure artist might have this interesting song that catches on and um and that's their 178 recording right well you know with that being said because now there's a couple of things we have to unpack because we were speaking about it in regards to music uh broadway but this menstrual world had a real impact on pop culture as a whole right because now let's 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 break down the the players in this right now we already spoke about Jim Crow and Zip Coon right and then they became one as just Z Coon then we had the Mammy we had the Uncle Tom we okay. had Buck mm -hmm. we had the Bedwench Jezebel we had the Mulatto and mm -hmm. we had the Pickaninnies yeah right so so now we fast forward to even now the last 20 30 40 years we see many up until today, we see many renditions of these characters in music, television, film, and we see our <laughs> local and state senators and politicians taking part in this blackface, um, in, in their case, fiasco. H how would you unpack that? Because it, 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 we're looking at something that, that that's a two-sided coin here. 
Yeah, well, it, it's really tricky with with those particular parts of the culture because we have to think of it. Again, Southern culture has a lot of contradictory points in it. and one But one of the things is that there's a pride in the culture in of itself. And that's where that's where you have something like the, the Blackface Minstrel Show. As it evolved, it became an international phenomenon. That's why I mentioned theater, because when you had, there was a circuit for international performance through the music hall circuit that would take you as far as Japan or Australia, also all over the world. And these Blackface Minstrel performers jumped on these circuits and played all over the world. And so that's a piece of popular culture that if you were someone in a foreign country and you happen to see a minstrel show, you would think that that was American culture just by your one chance of seeing this show. And so that's the, that's one of the ways that that reverberated as an international phenomenon, because then people wanted to play the banjo. They wanted to play the fiddle, the bones and the tambourine, and they made books method books to play all these instruments and to do your own minstrel shows and everything. There was a whole instruction booklet. It was a whole thing. But it, it's from that culture, you you still have it reverberating out. And it, and it's it's something that is in a lot of people's uh, a past, you know, mm. especially in the South. It's just a part of it's a part of the culture. And, you know, and we have to think like, you know, it wasn't until the early 80s that we really that people were really trying to even do political correctness this is why they tried to bring political correctness into it because you know there was a lot of uh, bad blood and a lot of bad words being used by a lot of people constantly and you know we haven't really gotten past that era and that's the thing that to me we haven't really gotten past that era of uh of culture and that, that's really something that that should be considered at least in the big thing it doesn't really make any of it right but um you know but in the in the world around appomattox virginia that's a there's a strong connection to both the end of the civil war as well as joe walker sweeney who was one of the guys to bring the uh, the African-derived banjo into the blackface minstrel show and changed the the form because then then banjo players were in demand. So you had one step at a time. You had each individual performer learning an instrument. First, they were just dancers and bones players. Then it was singular instrumentalists. And then you had the Virginia Minstrels, which is the first four-person minstrel show, a whole night of minstrel shows. And then by the time you get into the bigger minstrel shows, just to unpack the theater for folks, I know this is a little technical, but the minstrel shows are broken into three parts. And it's the oleo, which is the intro where everybody shows off a little bit of a feature. You have the so the 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 soloist section, the oleo. Yeah, you have the um, the fanfare, which is the big opening. The oleo, which is the specialized. So if someone has a special song they did by themselves, this is the time you'd see all the, everybody doing, uh, you know, like Emmett Miller, the blackface performer, he did the clarinet voiced yodel. And so that was like his specialty. Then the third part would be a theater production, usually of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. And what ended up happening, so at first they played straight Uncle Tom's Cabin, but then after a couple of decades, it just became comedy Uncle Tom's Cabin, which then created a, ser- a series of archetypes, which you're talking about the Mammy and Uncle Tom, Ligri, Liza, the Piccaninnies, and, and Topsy. All that stuff comes from this Uncle Tom's Cabin section of the minstrel show, which is a single section of the show. 
vaudeville is born out of just taking the oleo out and then everybody did vaudeville so it was only the specialist entertainment field so when you see the old bugs bunny cartoons were at the vaudeville theater that's based out of the minstrel show so there's always a touch of minstrel show within that popular form of theater so that's one of the reasons we see it reverberate again and again and again because it's such a it's so ingrained as one element it's like you know, like, um, uh, uh, like, uh, it's like electric, <laughs> like soul planes. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but, I mean, but you know, with, uh, thinking of like, like think of like a rock band, you know, like a rock band with the leotard, they have the uh, right. guitars and then you can even think of like, well, like Saturday Night Live or, or like, a, like hip hop. There's a, a part of hip hop that has disco in it because of the drum machines. Right. And y- if you take the disco out of it and you use like real drums, something gets lost in the old school rap because it's really all about having that Casio and two turntables instead of having a real drummer. You know, there's a certain aesthetic quality that's a part of it. But anyway, that's how vaudeville there's a, the minstrel show is just this one aesthetic quality that remained a part of it. And so of course you had big minstrel shows that grew in the the circuses, you know, like this is like PT Barnum era where you had hundreds of minstrels and then white and black minstrels against each other. I mean, this is it. And you can re- look at this stuff. It's a, uh, it's bombastic. I can't even imagine what some of these shows must have looked like. I mean, I'm, I'm horrified to think of it, some of them. But <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's hard. It's extremely hard, uh, you know, just to bring it a little bit modern. I remember the amount of white people who did not like, subscribe to, and want Married with Children off the air. They wanted Roseanne off the air, mm-hmm. right? And shows like this. And then the Italian-Americans, they wanted the Sopranos off the air. Okay. And then we can look, you know, and we can see the same thing in certain African-American shows and the same thing in certain Latino shows. So I guess with all this being said, and, and there's a lot of history, and what I've come to the conclusion based on our conversation right now, this was a, a theater tech model that, that spawned into records, spawned into films, spawned into radio, spawned into television. Are, are, are we, as a, as a collective, not you and I, are, are we taking this way too serious? Or, 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 you know, because it's like... I loved Archie Bunker growing up, and then I loved Maud, and I loved George Jefferson. But all of these people were saying some really harsh things. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what's tricky about this type of theater is that at the end of the day, since it's based around masks, all the all the characters can take their masks off and then be something completely different. And that's what makes this type of this type of entertainment always extremely confounding because it really at the end of the day it it's a it's a another mask and and that's one of the things that makes it so interesting to see how it's reverberated out there into the world um but um of course uh, again i i always take it back to what i've really enjoyed about learning about the blues and its role in putting that final nail in the black-faced minstrelsy because of the realness because the blues is always based on 
I'm telling you just like it is. It's me and you one-to-one, and I'm telling you like it is. Whether it's the, the guy talking about his woman or talking to his woman or talking to another man or, or whatever it may be or telling an audience about the, what they think about the blues. Uh, you know, and that was ultimately what, uh, what put the final nail in, in Blackface Minstrelsy. And I think that that's, that's something that's amazing, something that's very, very amazing. So is it safe to say that the blues is the expression that removed the mask? Because before that, it was all composed music. And so now the blues is an improvised music where you don't have to follow a model or an archetype of a character. You could be the exact character that you are. And of course, that's something that everybody loves about the blues even to this day. Mm, I, I, I dig it. Man, <sighs> we, we touched a whole <laughs> bunch of things here that was very necessary. Um, I, I, I believe you answered this several times over but I, I do want to just specifically ask you this one last question. Oh, sure. With everything said, what is the legacy of blackface and minstrelsy on African-American traditional music Ooh, and the black that's experience? A, that's a multifaceted one there. I mean, <laughs> it's to me. I'll tell you the greatest thing is that I can read about it in a book and then I can close that book. Mm. Uh, that's what I, that to me, that's progress. I'll just tell you that right off the bat. That, that's mm. progress. If I can, I can read about all this and then I can close the book and say, wow, I learned about it. It's like looking at the rings of a tree, you know? Yes. Uh, and it's like, and I try to keep myself removed if I get too wrapped up in it because people did what they did, but um, it's good to know their stories, just like any other story. Like, um, you know, like, I don't know, everything from Harriet Tubman to Madam C.J. Walker or, right. you know, any, any any other historical figure. Why not wouldn't Burt Williams or, or James Reese Sheriff be, be just as interesting or even Charlie Patton or Gus Cannon? They're they're just they're people that lived it <laughs> right so we wouldn't have to exactly and, okay yeah. so so yes that i'm clear so so in in closing what we're saying is the history is very good to understand and know and to be thankful we don't have to make those decisions yep that's the truth i mean it the, a lot of people made those big decisions and it's it's nice to be able to just keep on moving <laughs> <laughs> i totally understand and i totally get it man i thank you again this was this this is how it's done <laughs> oh jack Dapper, it's always a pleasure man thank you so much for having me